Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 6. Psalm 6 will be our sermon text for this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles on the back table. And uh, you are welcome not only to grab one of those for use during the service, but also to keep it, take it home, write your name in the front, uh, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we, uh, before we read God's Word this morning, I, I'm going to pray, which I, I always do, but I want to pray in particular for uh, Rashawn Aldridge. Um, you may or may not know that Rashawn on Thursday uh, was diagnosed with acute appendicitis and had surgery Thursday night and um, is now recovering well and is home. And uh, her parents are, are visiting to help take care of her uh, during her recovery. So we can praise God uh, for uh, the surgery, praise God for how well things went, praise God for her recovery, and ask that he would continue to oversee that recovery um, as we pray. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your, for your great mercy in your Son. We thank you for loving us and caring for us as your children. We thank you for your mercy to Rashawn. We thank you, Father, uh, for the doctors and for their wisdom and for their uh, actions, for overseeing the surgery, for caring for her and protecting her through that, Father. We thank you uh, for her uh, recovery so far. We thank you that her parents could come and visit and be with them during this time. And Father, we, we just thank you that you are a God of grace, that you have overseen every detail of what has gone on in, in their lives over the past couple of days. And we just thank you for your sovereign love, Father, uh, that you are not inattentive to our needs, uh, that you are, are not aloof, um, but you know, uh, you know what we need, you know when we need it, and you are there to provide. And we thank you, Father, for the, the millions of ways that we, we don't even know all of the ways that you have been providing for the Aldridge family over the past couple of days. We pray for Rashawn's full recovery, Father, as she uh, rests at home. We pray for your blessing on them uh, in their home. We pray that even the, the time of uh, her parents visiting would be a, a joyful time. Uh, as they get to spend time together, uh, even given the circumstances. Father, we pray that you will be glorified in that home. Father, we pray uh, for us as well as we come to your word this morning. We pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would humble us before your word. Father, that we would hear from you and be, uh, be convicted by your spirit, both of our sin, but even more of your great grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 6. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver me, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning, 
Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Well, last week we began talking about our worship service. And this morning we we come to a part of our service that is maybe at the same time the most offensive part of the worship service, but also the most needed by us. We're discussing the part of the service where God's Word convicts us of sin, shows that we have failed to live up. We then confess our sin together to God and then receive afresh God's forgiveness through the gospel. You can see we did that this morning. If you look in your bulletin, uh, we had maybe a little longer confession of sin than normal, but there it is, the call to confession, the confession of sin, and the, the assurance of God's grace. Well, I think this is the most needed part of the service for a number of reasons. This is true uh, in part relationally. We need uh, confession of sin. Confession is important for relationships, isn't it? And when when you wrong someone, anyone, uh, if you've had an argument with them, a disagreement, maybe you say things that you regret, um, the way you repair that relationship is by coming clean, by confessing what you've done, giving that person the opportunity to forgive you. This is true as well in our relationship to our Father in heaven. Confession is incredibly important to maintain that relationship as the ongoing fruit of that relationship. It's true psychologically as well. I mean, guilt and a bad conscience weigh on us, don't they? Um, It's true whether uh, you've wronged uh, a person or whether you understand your wrong as against God, guilt tends to weigh on us. And uh, there was an article in... um, I think it was Forbes magazine that listed six signs that you're suffering from a guilty conscience. It mentions things like, we tend to think everyone else can see our guilt. No matter how hard we try to hide it, uh, we think other people can see it. And so it tends to bring mood swings. It makes us fearful and angry that we feel exposed. Uh, We tend to be distracted because it takes energy to cope with a guilty conscience. We tend to put other people down, but wanting to bring them down to our level. We become prickly and oversensitive, unable to handle even simple criticisms because of the condemnation we feel from our own consciences. We become distrustful and paranoid. We tend to think that everybody is out to get us. Finally, this article says we tend to punish ourselves by sabotaging our success. Now, remember, this is a completely secular article in a secular magazine But it tells us that guilt has real serious consequences. And you know what his remedy is. It's really interesting. You get to the end of the article. He gives a remedy uh, for a guilty conscience. And the remedy that he gives is confession. We'll come back to the question whether confession itself can relieve guilt. But for now, I want to jump into Psalm chapter 6, where we see David coming to God, confessing his sin. And uh, from Psalm 6, we're going to see that we are to cry out to God in our sin. That we're to apply gospel logic in our prayers. 
And we're to know with confidence that God will hear and deliver. Those are the three points on your outline. You can see them on the back of your bulletin if you turn there. First, we'll see that we are to cry out to God in our sin. Now, in this passage, David is calling out to God in the midst of his sin. And you may wonder, why does David, why does David, King David, cry out to God? And uh, there are uh, a number of reasons. There are sort of objective and subjective reasons, or more or less objective and subjective reasons. Uh, first, the, the objective reason, David senses uh, that he has sinned and God is angry. He has sinned and God is angry. And, uh, you know, if you believe that you have no sin, then obviously this isn't going to resonate with you. Um, if you know you've messed up, but you think that uh, you can make things right, then you're probably going to look to yourself and your strength and not to God. But if your guilt is upon you, right? I mean, if you feel its weight, if you know that you've sinned against God, uh, then you're where David is right now. Uh, David was feeling the weight of his guilt. He was feeling the burden of his guilt. And you might wonder, well, how could God be angry with David? You know, the Bible actually pictures David as a model of what it means to have your sins forgiven. Uh, you can see that in, in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, Paul says this, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then Paul quotes David, saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. So here you have David, King David, who is a model for Christians of having our sins forgiven. And it's true, of course, that we are justified the moment we first believe. That is, when we're brought to Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. We're declared righteous in the Father's sight. As Christians, uh, God cannot love you any more than he does right now. Uh, he loves you perfectly and fully in his Son. God will not love you any less than he does right now, right? His love is unchanging and unfailing. That said, the Bible teaches that God is at times displeased with the actions and the attitudes of his children. Uh, now, God is patient with his children. He's long-suffering, the Bible says. He overlooks many of our failures and our shortcomings, but there are times when God is displeased with his children. Think about it. Uh, David, in his sin with Bathsheba, Scripture tells us that this sin displeased the Lord. Of course, how could we say otherwise, right? We would never say that David's murder of Uriah and his taking of Bathsheba as his own wife wasn't displeasing to the Lord. His sin displeased the Lord. And we're warned in the New Testament against grieving the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, we're sinful all the time, aren't we? We constantly fail. Our hearts are often, you know, are, are always on some level oriented in the wrong direction. But Paul seems to say that there are certain times when our sin grieves the Holy Spirit in a unique way. And we're to beware of that. This is a tension in the Christian life, isn't it? Uh, on the one hand, between being righteous in God's sight by faith and yet displeasing our Father by our sin. And we're not comfortable with tensions, and uh, so we tend to want to resolve them as quickly as possible. 
make it neat and clean. And so we tend to do that in one of two ways with this. Either we say, no, 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 God, God is not angry with your sin ever as a Christian. Uh, God loves you and has forgiven you, and so he's not angry. I'm, of course, very sympathetic to that view because Scripture emphasizes God's grace in our lives. And yet at the same time, I have to say it's uh, not realistic biblically because God was displeased with David's behavior when he slept with Bathsheba. We can't say anything else but that he was displeased with that. So on the one hand, we want to say, no, God, God is never angry with our sin and dismiss any thought of God's displeasure. Or if God might be displeased with my actions then we think our forgiveness is uncertain. I'm afraid that God might no longer love me. I mean, if he's not happy with what I've done, then he must not love me, or his love is somehow in question. See, we want to resolve this tension that I might be righteous in God's sight and displeasing by my sin at the same time. We're not comfortable with that. So we try to resolve it by saying either that my sin is not displeasing to God, or that I'm not righteous in God's sight when I sin. It's hard for us to see, I think, that God is neither permissive on the one hand nor judicially displeased with us on the other. It's hard for us to see that there is a third option, that in Christ God is neither a permissive grandfather uh, nor an angry judge, but that God has a fatherly, tender, loving displeasure at our sin. God is displeased with the sins of his children because of his love for us. Think about it. Because of his love, he desires us to find our joy and our peace in him and his glory. And when we turn to other things, when we sin, uh, we end up empty, and God wants to bring us back to himself. He is displeased with our sin for our sake. Just as we might be upset uh, if we saw one of our children hurting themselves, we would be displeased for their sake. That's why Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those he loves. We have a hard time with that, right? Uh, we, we must understand that to mean that God's discipline, God's discipline does not mean that he loves us less. In fact, according to Hebrews, his, that, that his discipline means that his love is whole and perfect, that God cares about every aspect of our lives. And so he disciplines us in love. And so he's displeased with our sin. John Calvin uh, put it like this. He asks, wrestling with this idea, that w- the fact that we struggle to understand this tension rightly, he, Calvin asks, what would the children of God do if they believe that the severity they feel, that is all the trouble that we go through, what, what would we do if we felt that that was God's vengeance? The one who is struck by the hand of God, Calvin says, but who thinks God is a punishing judge cannot conceive him as other than wrathful and hostile, cannot but detest the very scourge of God as curse and condemnation. In short, he who feels that God still intends to punish him can never be persuaded that he is loved by God. Calvin says, look, if you think that, that all the trouble you experience is, is God is out to punish you, right, then you're going to look at him as an angry, mean uh, God who's just out to get you. But Calvin goes on to say, that the one who profits from his trouble and and God's discipline in his life is the man who considers God angry at his vices, but merciful and kindly toward himself. Which sounds a lot like something that we often say, which is that um, 
we, we love the sinner and hate the sin. That's actually what Calvin says here. God is angry at our sins, and yet he is merciful and kindly toward us. Um, trouble is in our lives by God's design, Calvin is saying, either to prove our faith or to test our faith or to grow our faith or at times to discipline us for our lack of faith, whatever the case. It is in our lives because of God's mercy and kindness toward us. Trouble comes because of God's mercy and kindness. It can't be there for any other reason as God's children. I think we have a hard time with this because in human relationships, rarely do we encounter this kind of loving displeasure. I mean, think about the last time you were angry. You know, we most often get ang- angry with people uh, because we have been harmed or we have been hindered or something bad has happened to us, and so we strike out at the person. You know, our anger is because we love ourselves, not because we love the other person. But God's displeasure with our sin is because he loves us and truly desires our good. Now, what all this means for our present purposes, right, is that if God is displeased with our sin, even even as his justified people, we need to seek his forgiveness for that sin. You know, on the one hand, God has completely forgiven our sin the moment we first believed we're justified in Christ, but in time and space, God becomes displeased with our sin. We need to seek forgiveness for it. That is the way relationships work. And that, by the way, is the only thing that makes sense of Jesus' instructions on prayer, in Matthew 6. And think about it. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins. Does Jesus mean for us to pray this once? No, he means for us to pray this daily. As we ask for our daily bread, we pray for daily forgiveness. And we are promised that as we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He will forgive us every day. This is what makes sense of David's prayer in verse 1 of Psalm 6, David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. God is upset with David's sin because God loved David. He was displeased with his behavior. God loved David intensely, and so he disciplined him. We too, Hebrews says, can displease our father and receive his discipline. But of course, if we've trusted in Christ, if we're already justified by faith, Jesus stands ready to forgive us in time and space because all our sins, past, present, and future, were paid for at the cross. I know this tension is is maybe hard to hold on to, but it's important to hold on to. And so why must we cry out to God? Well, the objective reason is that because of our sin and God's displeasure with sin. If If you are a Christian, if you belong to God like David, if you have been justified like David, then you have no fear of condemnation. Your sins have all been dealt with in the cross, but God is nevertheless displeased with the sin of his children, and so we appropriate that forgiveness afresh. We experience his forgiveness afresh. We receive his forgiveness in time and space as we confess our sin to him. That's why the book of Hebrews promises that we have an advocate with the Father, or 1 John promises we have an advocate with the Father when we sin. We don't need an advocate with the Father when we sin if God isn't displeased with that sin. But we do have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So why do we cry out to God? Well, because of our sin, because of God's displeasure. There are subjective reasons as well we see in this psalm. David knew God's discipline. He knew the effects of sin. He was burdened by his conscience. He spent many sleepless nights in tears. 
Verses 7 and 8 and 10 hint that David's enemies are oppressing him in some way. God frequently uses the enemies of his people to chastise them in the scriptures. And so David says things like in verse 2, Be gracious to me, O God, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, how long, O Lord? David says, my life is wasting away under guilt. Your discipline has brought fear. I'm overwhelmed with life. God's discipline seems like it will never end for David. How long? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like God was against you? Like your troubles in the world were just never going to end? Everything seemed to go wrong? You know, Jesus at the cross cried out for us. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out to God when he was under the judgment of God for sin. It's a little bit different, isn't it, than us? We receive God's discipline and love. Jesus received God's judgment in wrath. Jesus bore the Father's judicial anger that we might receive the Father's disciplinary love. He loves you. He wants what is best for you. He wants you to turn to him. And when you sin, he disciplines you to turn you back that you might come and confess and receive afresh his smiling face. So the Bible exhorts us to cry out to God in our sin, to confess our sins because he's faithful and just to forgive, to pray, forgive us our transgressions, or to cry out to God in our sin, in our trouble, in our hardships, really whatever they might be. We're also to apply gospel logic in our prayers. Now, if that, if that last point was a little hard for you, if you're still wrestling with this, I hope it will get better as we go. Uh, in verses 4 to 7, David continues to ask for God's mercy, but he also begins to give reasons. He begins to argue for mercy. Verse 4 says this, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Why should God deliver David from his sin? Why ought God save David from sin's consequences? David says, for the sake of your steadfast love. Now, steadfast love is one of those great uh, words in the Bible, and it is a single word in the Hebrew uh, Bible. It's the word hesed. And um, Paul Miller defines steadfast love like this. He says it combines commitment with sacrifice. Hesed is one-way love, love without an exit strategy. When you love with hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love no matter what the response is. So if the object of your love snaps at you, you still love that person. If, you, if you've had an argument with your spouse in which you were slighted or not heard, you refuse to retaliate though through silence or withholding your affection. Your response to the other person is entirely dependent independent of how that person has treated you. Hesed, he says, is a stubborn love. God had committed to David by way of his covenant and his covenant promises. And, and God would love him no matter what. And so David, in his prayer for forgiveness, says, God, remember your promised covenant love. Remember your stubborn love. Remember your no matter what love. Yes, I've screwed up. Yes, I've made a mess. But your love, Father, is big enough to cover my sin. See, why ought God delivered David from his sin. David's first argument is your love is big enough. Your covenant love is big enough. 
then in verse 5, David goes on. He says, For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise? I think the essence of David's argument here is, if I die, I can't praise you. If I die, I can't recount your mercy. Now, you might think, well, doesn't David know he's going to go to heaven when he dies? <laughs> doesn't he know that he'll be able to praise God there? And I think the answer to that question is in part that it misses the point. And, and not only does it miss the point, it misunderstands the goodness of the created world. God created us as human beings to be embodied creatures. We were made to have tongues that praise God. We were made to have mouths that recount His marvelous deeds. We were made to have ears that hear the praise of God and hear the telling of His marvelous deeds. That's the way God intended for it to be. God did not intend us to be disembodied spirits in heaven. That's unnatural. He created us to have tongues and mouths and ears. And David focuses on the way God intended it to be. He says, God, you made me to praise you with my lips and to sing of you with my tongue. God, I can't do that in the grave. If you give me over to my sin, I will perish and you will not receive the praise that you are due. What is David saying? What he's really saying is, God, it's to your glory if you save me from this sin. It's to your glory if you forgive me. It's to your glory if you relieve me from the curse that I'm under and the pain that I'm experiencing. This is the way to sort of argue gospel logic in your prayers. God, forgive me because your love is big enough. God, forgive me so that you will be glorified and praised. We, we even sung that this morning when we sung, God, be merciful to me. Um, God, be merciful to me. On your grace, I rest my plea. What's, what is my plea? It's your grace, Father. That's, that's what I'm arguing on, based on. I'm not arguing, forgive me because I'm good enough. I'm not arguing, forgive me because I came to church this morning. I'm not arguing, forgive me because I know the right words to say to get your forgiveness. I'm saying, forgive me because of your grace. Your grace is big enough. Forgive me because of your grace. There's one more in this psalm. It's in verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 say, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Now, in some ways, there's no explicit argument here, is there? David doesn't say, forgive me because of this. But there is an assumption. David is assuming something. Think about it. Why does David tell God about his weariness and about his tears and about his grief and about his weakness? Why does he tell him these things? Because David knows that God is a God of compassion, David knows that God's very character is the character of one who cares for the needy and for the miserable. I mean, think about the book of Exodus, where Israel is suffering under this horrible oppression, and we read in the very beginning of the book of Exodus that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew that's God's character. He's a God who looks on his people, looks on their misery, and has compassion for them. God's covenant and his character, his steadfast love and his compassion, David is confidently applying this gospel logic to his prayer, saying, God, forgive me because of your covenant, die hard love. Forgive me because of your compassion. Forgive me because that is to your greater glory as I praise your name and celebrate your forgiving mercy. And yet, as we stand here today, I don't know, 3,000 years after David? I can't count quickly, but 
we have another argument, don't we? Uh, We know the one who cried out to be delivered, but was judged so that we might be delivered instead. Uh, We know the one who said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but who drank the full cup of God's judicial wrath so that not a drop remains for us. We know Jesus who bore our sin on the cross. If you want gospel logic as fuel for your prayers, to add confidence to your prayers, add this, right? Jesus died for sinners. I'm a sinner. Forgive me, Father, for Jesus' sake. This brings us to our last point. We're to cry out to God in our sins. We're to apply gospel logic to our prayers. And we're to know with confidence that God will hear and deliver. We see a couple things in these last three verses. We see David's confidence that God hears. We see David's confidence in a future deliverance. And we see David's confidence in the present. You know, three times in these verses, David confidently asserts that God has received his prayer. He says, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping in verse 8. The Lord has heard my plea in verse 9. The Lord accepts my prayer. And uh, it's interesting, if you read through the commentaries, the commentators are kind of puzzled over this sudden shift. In verses 6 and 7, David is drenching his bed with tears and weeping, and then suddenly he's defying his enemies because of his confidence that God has heard him. And all the commentators say that there seems to be, something must have happened between these verses, right? Between verse 7 and verse 8, something took place that David doesn't tell us about. Well, I don't know if something happened or not, but it seems to me that David just drew the logical conclusion from his prayers. God, you are full of steadfast love. God, you want your glory known. God, you are a God of compassion to those in need. So David rises up from his knees with confidence because God has heard his prayer. This was even true as we think about our Savior, wasn't it? Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross saying, let this cup pass from me. He went to the cross saying, why have you forsaken me? And yet, in the end, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. God, I entrust myself to you. And did God abandon Jesus to the grave? No, Uh, he raised him up from the dead. This is what we're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, which says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. It's interesting that it says Jesus was heard because of his reverence. That's a little scary to me because I think, okay, I'm, not, I'm certainly not as reverent as Jesus was. I don't honor God the way Jesus did. Jesus was heard because of his reverence. What does that mean for me? Um, in fact, uh, the psalmist even says in another psalm, uh, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Uh, that's kind of scary too because, okay, um, I know I have sin in my heart. Does that mean God is not going to listen to my prayer? Sin does hinder our prayers, the Bible says, which again highlights the importance of confession. But Jesus was heard because of his reverence. The Father heard the Son. Okay, so why does the Father listen to my prayers? Why does the Father listen to your prayers? Is it because we have confessed our sin enough? I mean, really, can you confess all your sin? Do you even know all of your sin? No. The Father doesn't hear our prayers because we've confessed our sin enough. The Father hears our prayers because of Jesus. We always come to the Father through Him. 
We don't come to the Father saying, Father, I've, I've confessed enough, I've done enough, now you can listen to me. We don't say, I come to the Father in my name, we come to the Father in Jesus' name. So our confidence that God hears is not that, that we've been good enough, it's not that we've confessed our sin enough, our confidence that God hears us is that we have a high priest, Jesus, who has gone into heaven, is seated right now at the right hand of the Father, praying for us, his children, as our advocate. He sympathizes with our weakness. He knows our temptations. He cleanses our conscience by his blood so that we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Will God hear your prayer for mercy? Sometimes people think that God can't possibly forgive them uh, they've sinned too big or they've sinned too long. God couldn't really love them. Well, you come to him through Jesus. And along with David, right, David the murderer, David the adulterer, you can say with confidence as you come through Jesus, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. So you can be confident that God will hear as you come in the name of Jesus. Of course, that's not all. You can be confident that God will hear. You can be confident that God will deliver. Look at verse 10. David in verse 10 says, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. See, the oppression David is feeling from his enemies is a part of God's disciplinary love. God was humbling David. He was using earthly troubles to humble him. But David is confident that because God had heard his prayer, God would forgive him, and therefore those troubles would come to an end. This is, again, what happened with Jesus. It's the pattern we see in our Savior again and again. He went to the cross as a punishment for our sin. Once that sin was dealt with, God enabled Jesus to triumph over his enemies in the resurrection. Jesus was seated far above all rule and all authority at the right hand of the Father. And I want you to think about all the troubles that you experience, whether they're a result of your sin or not, but all, all trouble is a part of sin's presence in the world, isn't it? All misery, all frustration, all broken relationships and anger and hatred and hunger and grief and pain and weakness and sorrow. These things were brought into the world when Satan tempted our first parents in the garden. He is our great enemy. He is the roaring lion seeking to devour us. The resurrection of Jesus undoes all those things. I mean, in Jesus' resurrection, death is undone so that all misery and brokenness and pain, all, that, all things that lead up to death and culminate in death, all of those are undone as well. And Jesus didn't rise in a body that continues to be weak and subject to suffering and pain. Jesus rose in a body that was glorious and powerful and immortal. And Jesus conquered his and our enemies. And when we look to him, we can know with confidence that our enemies have been defeated in the cross, that our enemies are being defeated as we walk by faith in the resurrection rather than fear of death, and our enemies will be defeated when Jesus returns and we will be raised from the dead as he was. See, we can with confidence, we can, we can have confidence when we come to the Father through Jesus, we can know that our prayers are heard, that our sins are forgiven, and that our Father will deliver us as he did our head and Savior Jesus. And so David shows the, the confidence that God hears, confidence in God's deliverance, but he also shows confidence in the present. You know, verse 8 is important because in verse 8, David says, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Now, verse 10 tells us David's enemies had not yet been put to shame. Right? He says, My enemies will be put to shame. They shall turn back. 
They hadn't yet been put to shame. His enemies still have the upper hand. Just as death and trouble is still present, are still present realities for us. We still go through troubles. We still experience pain and suffering. We still face death every day. But David, nevertheless, with confidence in the present, he says, depart from me. I don't know about you, but so often I look, I look at the future deliverance. I look at that resurrection. I look at that day when God is going to raise us from the dead and give us new bodies and bring us to himself. And we're going to see him face to face in the new creation. I think about that, that day of resurrection, and I pine for it and I long for it and I hope for it. But I'm not confident in the present in light of that future. You know, I know I will be delivered, but I feel defeated. David lives in confidence of that future deliverance. Because he knows that God has heard his prayer. And think about it. Can you, can you live with your head up in the midst of the chaos of life? Not because your troubles have ended, but because you know that they will. And put it differently, can you live in hope? Hope doesn't take away pain. It doesn't take away trouble. It doesn't take away difficulty, but it contextualizes it. It gives us perspective. Can you live in the present, in the hope of the future? That God will deliver his people. Well, we've been talking about confession, and uh, we began with that Forbes article, uh, which talked about all the negatives of guilt weighing on us, and in the end of that article, he promotes confession. He says that uh, he actually does that by quoting Oscar Wilde, uh, who said, it is the confession, not the priest, that gives absolution. And what the writer of the article seems to be saying by that, by quoting Oscar Wilde, is that confession doesn't have anything to do with religion, doesn't have anything to do with forgiveness. It's just getting it off your chest. It's this cathartic moment of sort of getting the guilt out by verbalizing it. But I think it's this view of confession that actually caused uh, a writer for The New Yorker to say, confession is good for the soul only in the sense that a tweed coat is good for dandruff. See, if all confession does is make me feel better about myself, then it really hasn't changed anything. But you know, when you come to God for the first time and confess your sin and trust in Jesus, or when you come to God day after day and night after night and confess your sin and trust in Jesus, or when you come to God in the worship service, as we've done this morning, and confess our sin and trust in Jesus, you're not merely getting it off your chest. You're confessing your sin to the only one who can truly Forgive it. And you are receiving his forgiving mercy afresh in Jesus. Because when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you stand ready to forgive us because Jesus at the cross has dealt with all of our sin. And so you stand ready, ready to forgive, ready to show mercy, ready to cleanse us. Father, give us humble hearts. Show us our sin that we might bring it to you and lay it at your feet and confess it. Forgive us for the sins that we've committed that we don't even know. Father, show us your mercy and your grace. Remind us of your love in your Son that we might 
put away sin and simply rejoice that we might use our tongues and use our mouths to praise you as the God of mercy, the God of steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.